Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is something a little different. I interviewed a musician, a Cecilia Otto, or C.C. Otto, as she is also known. Uh, she recreates American pop songs from the late 1800s and early 1900s. And recently, she had a really kind of unusual and ambitious history project. She went on a road trip on the remains of the Lincoln Highway. The Lincoln Highway was a pre-interstate highway auto trail that went from New York to San Francisco, and she traveled the remains of it and also sang songs about the Lincoln Highway while on her tour, which is awesome. How could I not talk to her? I really dig things like that. You know, I like to read about history and talk about history and, you know, write about history and I do live events and a podcast and all that. But I I cannot help but admire people who go the extra mile by, say, uh, dressing up as a pirate or, you know, learning old-timey blacksmith skills or going on road trips on the remains of an old highway and singing songs about what used to be there. This is a total cliche, and I'm sort of sorry for saying it, but hey, that makes history come alive. No, for real, that makes history come alive. That is awesome. So we have a talk with Cecilia, uh, or Cece. Uh, Also, you will hear some of the music that she performs, and enjoy. Hello, Cece. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Cool. So I thought we would start things off by... Uh, you summing up to people what it is you do. Um, if somebody were to approach you and ask you for the 30-second elevator pitch of like your whole project, what is that? I would tell them that I share America's history through song. That's my main focus. And so what I do is I do programs, concert programs, are themed around vintage music in vintage attire. And then I usually also introduce the pieces in kind of a vaudevillian style so that people have kind of a reference point for the music. So it's not just thrown at them and they have to kind of figure out what I'm singing about and why this is important. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, what time periods are you focusing on? I focus on roughly the 1890s to anything prior to World War II. So I kind of cut it off at about 1935, 1938. All right. Excellent. And so when we're talking about period attire, we're not talking about, say, like, uh, Continental Army jackets (laughs) or, you know, that type of thing. Um, I mean, what do you look like when you're doing these shows? (laughs) Good point. Um, When I do these shows, it's basically post-corset, because that's pretty hard to sing in, as you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've never worn a corset, but I imagine so. (laughs) Post-corset, but pre-flapper. So the gowns are, you know, go still down to the ankles, um, but again, there's no corset, so they tend to have, you know, the dresses of 100 years ago would have kind of a general, like, blank kind of monotone color for, and it was usually sleeveless, and Mm -hmm. then they would invest in, like, lace and embroidered, you know, at like over gowns mm-hmm. and you would put those over the dress and you change those out so that it's like changing your look without spending a lot of money. Oh. Yeah. That's actually, yeah. that's clever. It is. Nobody thought, but yeah, that's kind of how you do that look from the period is to find like a nice slip or a nice kind of sleeveless dress and then you put something kind of fancy over it. 
Okay, so mm-hmm. you're you are replicating both the look and sound. Yes, of... from the makeup to the shoes to the gestures, everything is pretty much replicated for the time period. Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into this? Wow, that that's been a journey unto itself. Um, <laughs> I am a classically trained singer and composer, and I, my my background and focus originally was in opera and in operetta music. So think like Gilbert and Sullivan, or you know Victor Herbert pieces, or that kind of thing. And um, you know when the economy kind of hit in the late two, you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, artists took a hit too, right? Everyone took a hit, and I was trying to think of ways to still kind of do something that wasn't opera because there just weren't people hiring. And so I thought about all the things that I love to do. And it came down to I love to sing, I love to travel, I love to write music, and I love to write words. And so the words singing travelogue popped into my head. And I thought, that's a really cool concept. What does that mean? You know, it was just kind of what does that mean? And I had to sit with it for a while. And then um, I got kind of an aha moment, and I thought back to a book that I was given by a friend of mine called The Song Lines by Bruce Chatwood. And in that book, this British travel writer goes, um, follows Australia's Aborigines on Walkabout and, you know, tries to figure out what they do, and they actually sing their ancestors back into existence. And I thought that that was an amazing idea. And I kind of wanted to bring an American version to that here. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about the travel log. You, yeah. You went on a road trip. I did. A, um, almost six month road trip. A musical road trip. Yes. Okay. So so what what did that entail? <laughs> so I had this singing travel log idea in my head. And I was like, how do I, you know, how do I do this in America? And I thought, you know, there's so much history on in the roads in this country. Mm-hmm. There's so much of our culture is tied up in the love affair of the automobile, the love affair of, you know, going across the country when pioneers, you know, went across. And once they got west of the Mississippi, who knew what would happen and that kind You'd of thing. You'd die of dysentery. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Usually that was the case. Um so uh, I started looking at the roads, the map system of this country, and of course interstates are just boring, horribly, horribly boring. <laughs> like no one wants to see anyone do a singing travelogue near the beef jerky at a truck stop. It just is not a good idea. Although, you know, there might be a few out there, but you know, that, I, I think that that wasn't a good idea. So I looked. I found the national highway system and the auto trail system that we had at the turn of the century, which was honestly really fascinating because roads didn't have numbers like they do now. They mm-hmm. had names. They had stories behind them, and they were based off of pioneer trails, Civil War trails, Revolutionary War trails, anything you could think of, and they incorporated that history into that, um, into those roads and into what was um, actually called the Good Roads Movement, because all of these horseless carriages were appearing, and nobody could travel anywhere with them because the roads were still pretty bad. They were in really bad shape, lots of mud. You'd have paved roads probably in kind of immediate towns, but for people to get from one town to another was quite arduous at points. So there were a lot of 
no surprise, automotive dealers, automotive makers of tires and various other things that kind of banded together and wanted to make these roads better so not only people could get from point A to point B, but they could also sell a few things on the side, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I saw all the history in these roads and I was looking at all of the different names and saw the Lincoln Highway, and it really stood out to me, not only because, you know, it, it, it was transcontinental. It went from New York to San Francisco, but it also pretty much mirrored uh, the first transcontinental railroad on a number of levels. So it, you're going through some really interesting scenery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was known, there were a few songs about it, but it wasn't known like Route 66 or the Blues Highway, which is Route 61, that, you know, Dylan sings about and a couple other jazz musicians. So I thought, this is this is where I want to take this journey. And I also saw in an interesting coincidence that it was turning 100 in 2013. So I thought, what a great way to kind of celebrate, you know, this road and celebrate America by giving kind of vintage-style concerts. The songs they would have heard 100 years ago while they were driving and taking their own road trips across the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how long would have it taken for somebody to go from New York to San Francisco on this thing? What was the speed limit like or the road conditions <laughs> like? It's really interesting because, you know, so many people, this was so foreign to them that, you know, first off, let's also make the reference point that there were not speedometers. Uh, speedometers were not required in cars until I think the 20s or the 30s. Same with headlights. They were options that people could have. So each car was a little bit more kind of makeshift and you know a lot of people would only drive a day for that reason yeah so these travel guides that actually came out there's not just uh, there's multiple ones of the different auto trail routes but there's actually ones of the lincoln highway from 1915 you know 1916 they would publish new ones as new hotels and diners and they would also publish the gas prices the mileage the speeds through these towns because sometimes the signs weren't posted your typical mileage was anywhere from about 5 to 15 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get across the country, they said it was roughly 30 to 60 days, depending on your car. Wow. Which normally, of course, would have taken weeks by train, so they were touting this as you know the fastest way to get across the country. And But they noted in these travel guides to be very prepared, that once you got west of Omaha or Cheyenne, depending on the year of publication for the Lincoln Highway, you had to bring water, you had to bring 10 pounds of potatoes with you. You had to bring rations. And, you know, some of the fun comments that uh, I actually sang about on the tour were, you know, like, don't drink alkali water, serious cramps result. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, don't wear new shoes, you know, because so many people got dressed up because it was such a big status symbol and such a big deal, you know, to drive in an automobile, which, of course, is so different now. No one has to pack 10 pounds of potatoes. No one dresses up when they're driving in a car for long distances. Right. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. The The song I was talking about, too, was kind of interesting. A composer who was actually writing some orchestral suites about the Lincoln Highway, he did movements for different regions. He saw what I was um, about to do when I did this big road trip, and he approached me and said, I'm really interested in writing a couple of songs for your tour. And so he and I spoke for a few hours on the phone in a couple different conversations and picked over these old 1915, 1916 travel guides Mm -hmm. and found some really interesting kind of 
advice and nuggets and all the flowery poetry that came with the 19 teens and he put it together in this kind of faux poetry style so the first song was about the do's and don'ts what to do what not to do and then the second one was about you know what would you see along the way what were the signs what were the different you know mentions in the travel guidebook like for example in Yosipa, Utah, mm-hmm. there was a Hawaiian settlement that came over. Yeah, because of course there were Mormons with Brigham Young that went to Hawaii and wanted to, and they wanted to bring people back. So they brought them back and created a Hawaiian settlement there. And it was like the only settlement for miles and miles to get water and to do whatever else. And huh. it notes in the caption, you know, native dances are sometimes held, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and of course now, Yosipa is actually a ghost town. There's a cemetery there, and they have kind of annual events for the Hawaiian descendants that live either in Utah or people come back from Hawaii and will celebrate kind of that history there. But that, that's kind of an interesting, I never would have thought, you know, factoid about the route. Right. So um, the songs that you're performing were written about the Lincoln Highway. And what's an example of one? Oh, so there's a great old piece um, by Al Jolson that was written in the 1920s, and it was called Golden Gate. And it was about how people were fed up with the rain and snow, and they, you know, he wanted to go someplace um, to ease his weary heart. And so where did you go? You went to California, and you drove through the Golden Gate, you know, and a little sun-kissed blonde is smiling his way just beyond the Lincoln Highway. And so there were little kind of mentions and rhymes about it in that uh, a famous musical also as well. It's called Babes in Arms. Mm -hmm. And Mickey Rudy and Judy Garland were in this musical. And it's actually about these kids who have parents who are out of work vaudeville performers and they're trying to raise money for summer stock, more or less. So do you think we could uh, maybe cut and allow listeners to uh, listen to youth performing one of those songs? Yeah! Alright, what are they going to listen to? What are they going to listen to? Uh, they're going to listen to God's Country. That's the piece from Babes in Arms. It's okay. the finale of Act 4. I am So all this music that people um, uh, consumed, that what you said was from a musical, but most of it would have been uh, live performances. Live performances, you know, and those performances would have been saloons, dance halls, opera houses, um, you know, uh, there were country club programs. That's one facet of this tour that I also did because I wanted to bring a community focus to the tour. Mm-hmm. So I actually contacted historical societies and archives across all 14 states along the route and told them what I was doing. And I said, could you please send me programs, if you have any concert programs from 1913 to 1935, Mm -hmm. to see kind of what they performed 100 years ago. And the results were really fascinating because there were songs that you wouldn't think that you would hear, but you would hear. 
Um, you know, one example in the, you know, in the classical music world, there's kind of that thought process that you're going to hear the same stuff no matter what. Like, everybody who listens to Mozart now, they were listening to the same stuff of Mozart 100 years ago. And it's not the case. For mm -hmm. example, I found these old programs of Lily Lehman. She was a very prominent mm -hmm. mezzo-contralto that performed in Carnegie Hall in Pittsburgh because, of course, Andrew Carnegie had Carnegie Halls all over the place at that point. And she did excerpts from Carmen, which, mm -hmm. of course, everyone knows, but she did some Haydn canzonettas, believe it or not. Um, Haydn actually wrote songs in English because he had people who were friends in London at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there was a song called The Wanderer that was very interesting for 200 years prior. It sounds like an old radio play when you hear it. You mm. close your eyes and there's this... You know, these, those, think of those train track diminished chords that you're hearing, you know, da -da -da -da, someone's tied to the train tracks and they're asking for help. It's all of that there, but it was actually there 200 years ago when it would have been very unconventional for the time. Hmm. But people really responded to it, obviously, in the 20s as the radio movement is just kind of getting its legs as people are starting to have that money to buy radios and hear those radio dramas. So mm -hmm. it was interesting. It was an interesting choice from a classical music selection. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the music that was also associated with the highway, was that ever, um, we're talking about sort of like popular music, obviously. Mm -hmm. Was that ever, say, like commercial? Is this something that like a state or a business or whatnot would commission to promote themselves? Um, how, was this, how was this written and disseminated? I think what's interesting about that period is and there were a couple of songs like this that I featured on the tour that were actually kind of grassroots people demanding the music be written for hmm. it. There's one great um, story that I tell about this song called Out Where the West Begins. And back in 1915, there were governors arguing in several states about where the West began. And they had argued, of course, by a <laughs> newspaper... You know, because Telegraph, it, it, there's just no point after a certain point. So they would have their opinions known of where did the West begin? Was it, you know, Montana? Was it Nebraska? Was it Colorado? Was it Wyoming? And this Denver Post columnist of the time, his name was Arthur Chapman, he published a poem about where he thought the West began on the very front page of the Denver Post. Mm -hmm. And again, this is along the Lincoln Highway at that point. And people love the poem. People responded to this poem, they recited this poem, it spread through newspaper like wildfire, mm -hmm. and it became the most recited poem for the late teens. It went viral. It went viral for a hundred years ago, exactly. Yeah. Um, and people loved the poem so much, there was a demand to have it set to music because they wanted oh, to wow. dance and sing to it. Huh. Yeah. Is that something you've performed? Yes, I have. Can we cut to that? Yes, we can. All right. Where the sun shines a little brighter Where snows that fall are a trifle whiter Where the bonds of home are a wee bit tighter That's where the West begins So yeah, I mean it's an interesting thing to think about how the people actually controlled the music a little bit more in ways that 
you know, we just don't even fathom. Who knew a poem on a newspaper could go viral, as you said, and then have it be demanded to be put to music so people could sing and dance to it. Right. That is extraordinarily mm-hmm. cool. Um, and how is uh, something else that uh, I want to ask you about was mm-hmm. how is this music reproduced and how is it put into like the hands of the performers? Oh, good question. So Tin Pan Alley and sheet music, especially in the 19 teens, was a massive industry. There were six billion pieces of music sold between 1910 and 1920 in this, mm-hmm. in this country alone. I mean, it was a massive industry. It was how people passed the time because, again, silent films were there, but that cost money. The way people entertained themselves was through music. So these songs were kind of the go-to, and a lot of places had not only, depending on the size of the town, you would either have, you know, obviously a piano store or a musical store, but you may also have a sheet music store, depending on where you went. Okay. And... And you have some vintage sheet music here today. I do, actually, yes. And you can see that, um, you know, the it's pretty big. Yeah, so describing this, um, this is uh, larger than you'd think it would be. Uh, I'm seeing these two bits of sheet music, and they are um, bigger than an old copy of Life magazine, mm-hmm. if that's any reference point for people. Um, it's not as big as a legal pad, but it's still, it's still huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, where would you have where would you have bought this and how would you have previewed it and how was it reproduced and yeah what was what was the industry behind these things? So you would have bought these either you know again in music stores or sheet music stores. They were of course printed by various public publishers, usually in New York or Chicago, mm-hmm. and these they would do kind of a general hand drawing and then they would get pressed and printed. Same with the music as well because. Of course, you know, I I wish, have your listeners just Google, you know, old sheet music, but you can see the detail on these prints Mm -hmm. is just amazing. And they all kind of look like this. They're, you know, that sheet music had to tell a story on the cover so people would buy it. Mm -hmm. And one way people would, you know, of course you look at this cover and you're like, what does this song sound like? You know, right. Right. How how do you know what this is going to sound like? Well, they had people that were sheet music girls or boys, and they were trained to sight read the sheet music and sing along with what was there. So if someone came in, they would give you a quarter and they would play that sheet music so you could hear the song. And if you liked the song, they kept the quarter and you would take the music with them. If you didn't like the music, it was just a dime for their time to play through that. But that was kind of how people heard this stuff because, of course, there were cylinder recordings. There were, you know, old Victrolas and things. But it was still pretty expensive to buy those types of players. So you had to have someone actually play it for you so you could hear it. Right. And a Mm -hmm. lot of those uh, early recordings probably didn't give you a really true idea of what it sounded like either very true you know it's interesting to note especially with the recording technology of the time a lot of these singers especially if they were kind of classically trained which a lot of them were you know um to sing with the ranges of this stuff they would actually sing to a back wall they'd sing to a wall and then the sound would bounce and hit the microphone because the microphones just did not have good technology of the time which is why they always had that kind of airy kind of faraway quality, it was right. because that was the best way they could capture it for the time. Huh. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. 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 
So what ended up happening to the Lincoln Highway? I mean, nowadays when people are planning their cross-country trips, you get on an airplane or interstate highway system. Um, is it still around? Could I mean, you went on a road trip. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what is there today? What happened and what is there today? You know, what happened was a lot of people, as these cars started doing these road trips at the turn of the century, they saw the traffic that came through. And that, of course, brought money to their town and commerce to their towns. And But there was not really decent ways to market still. it didn't. We didn't have the highway signs that we had today. People would kind of paint phone poles with these logos, mm-hmm. and that would sort of market, but... There were also just kind of markers that were just stuck in the ground for people to follow, or you were asking so and so at this farm, you know, which way does it go now? That kind of thing. You know, that was your GPS for 100 years ago, was, right. was actually people kind of mm-hmm. telling you stuff. And what ended up happening was neighboring towns got very jealous. So, in order to cash in on some of this in the middle of the night, because again, people were not driving at night, they would steal these markers and move them to have it go through their town. <laughs> This is very common along not only the Lincoln Highway, but some of these other roads like the Dixie Highway as well. So to get some of that, like, sweet, sweet travel revenue. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So um, the government was pretty annoyed by this and decided in the 1920s that all of these named auto, auto trails on the National Auto Trail System needed to be numbered. And so when they did that, unlike Route 66, where it's almost a number all the way through... The Lincoln mm-hmm. Highway, because it was over 3,000, it was 3,300 miles roughly, um, it was broken up into multiple numbers. And that's ultimately what caused the demise of the highway. You know, the Boy Scouts in 1928 actually did a nationwide tour where they plotted these concrete markers mm-hmm. with the with this bronze bust head of Lincoln. It had the little logo and the arrow, so anybody who still knew the... You know, the name of the road could follow it, but of course, eventually people didn't know what that meant. They would get plowed over. I mean, to this day, people still find them buried in, you know, like because it just falls and then the dirt falls over it. Or some people stole it for the bronze head and then find it in a garage. You're just out there in the field and you find like a bronze Abe Lincoln head. It's mostly along, like, some of the old county roads and frontage roads that you'll find this stuff. But there were there's people that I've talked to as I went across the route where you'll have... I mean, these markers are about three to four feet high. Mm-hmm. And, the you know, the bust head or the little marker head with his little flat little bronze thing on. Because it looks like a penny, but it's just really big. Right. That's about this big. And I've seen in museums... This is great radio. How, how, how big, big is, is that? it? Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I would say it's, okay. it's about uh, 18 inches, roughly, uh-huh. for an original <laughs> marker. No. <laughs> 18 inches. Yes. Okay. Yes. So uh, this 18-inch top of these markers out of three to four feet has sur- resurfaced in a lot of places where people just kind of stole the top of it, and then it got stored away in an attic or a garage, and... People are going through stuff and they're like, what is this? You know, because mm-hmm. nobody remembers. And all of a sudden, you know, Lincoln Highway Museums and there's actually a, a National Lincoln Highway Association. We're like, oh, that needs to be in a museum and here's why, you know, and they have right. to explain it. Yeah. Um, so today, because this numbering system broke up the highway, it makes it difficult. But with the modern Lincoln Highway Association that was born in the 90s, they took over 10 years to structure a Google map that you can literally follow turn by turn. 
mm-hmm. if you go to their website and you can see all the different alignments that occurred over time, you can see the different landmarks that are there. And about 85% of the route is actually still fairly drivable. There's okay. some sections on private land. There's actually some sections that are now part of the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, which is a huge military base through the desert. And mm-hmm. so those are some harder detours that you kind of have to take around. But mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is still accessible and still in fairly good condition. You can see actually brick stretches. There's actually a yellow brick stretch in Pennsylvania you can drive on. There's some red brick stretches that go for, I think, the one in Nebraska is about two miles. Mm -hmm. And it's maintained extremely well. Very cool. Mm -hmm. But the highway signs don't say the Lincoln Highway or like this exit for the Lincoln Highway. It's labeled with whatever modern highway name or number it might have. Unfortunately, in a lot of places it is, there are some movements depending on the state that Mm -hmm. there are actually some, you know, scenic highway routes um, in Ohio, in Iowa, in Illinois. Of course, in the land of Lincoln, Illinois, it's very clearly marked. (laughs) It would be kind of a disservice to the state if they didn't do that. Um, There's some sections in Nevada and Nebraska that are also marked as well. But there are also part of the state, you know, other states that aren't marked. And yes, you're kind of relying on paper maps, Google maps. Uh, You know, again, don't use GPS because it's going to steer you towards the freeway unless you turn that off. But, you know, most of the time I was relying on paper or my eyes or actually the architecture of the road when I was going. I kind of knew towards the end of it, if I was on or off that highway because of how it looked. And another secret for your listeners, too, is to look for the telephone poles. Oh. It's an interesting thought, right? Because as the road was getting laid, the telephone system was also getting put in at the same time. So they had to have access to those cables and wires to fix them. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of states, especially kind of in the Midwestern states, Either look for the railroad to be Mm -hmm. on your left or your right, or look for those telephone poles or both. And that will give you a really good idea of where you're at. Cool. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing now? What am I doing now? Well, after I finished the tour, I uh, took some time and then I published a book about my travels, kind of talking about this. A lot of people wanted to find out what it was like to do something like this. And then I recorded some favorite songs and also some new songs I wrote about the route. And what I'm also working on right now is actually a World War I project. Um, you know, I saw there were more songs written about that war than any other war in history. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people use the sheet music both in America and I think abroad to kind of tout their propaganda. Again, if it wasn't the newspaper and people were using music as their entertainment, it was a way for people to be educated and informed about the war. Mm-hmm. So they would buy these songs to learn about what was happening. And um, there's just some amazingly, you know, just great stuff. And I thought that those songs and stories needed to be heard. And I feel like that period of history is very... Uh, overlooked in America just because Mm -hmm. we weren't involved for very long, but there's still a lot of great stories to be told. So I am, uh, you know, I launched a crowdfunding campaign to take pre-orders for this album. It's a a little bit trickier to produce an album of of this type Mm -hmm. because as people may or may not remember, the songs were shorter then because of the technology at the time. So I almost have to double my album length to make a decent album by today's standards. So... Uh, how long could a song be with the technology of that time? Typical technology with either Edison cylinders or some of the early wax records was generally two to three minutes. 
Okay. So, you know, to, a, a song for today is roughly about... They make the joke that why are pop music songs always under four minutes? But it seems the magic number for ears and listening is about three minutes and 50 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting to know that, you know, it, 50 seconds is not a lot when you think about it, but in regards to building a full album, you know, that can make a huge difference in regards to how people interpret and, you know, disseminate the music. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And the crowdfunding uh, campaign was that Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe. What? Let's let's send people there. <laughs> I'm go- I'm doing it on Indiegogo. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep. And what's what should they sh- what should they search for? Songs of WW1. All right. Mm-hmm. And they'll find me there. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, the name of your book and album? The name of my book and album is an American Songline: A Musical Journey Along the Lincoln Highway. All right. Yep, both the album and CD have the same title. All right. Excellent. Cool. So, Cece, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you again, Joe, for having me. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, We have links to all of Cecilia's stuff, her site, her book, her album, her crowdfunding campaign, over at interestingtimespodcast.com. Also over there, uh, we have links to our own crowdfunding campaign, which you should totally contribute to. Um... This podcast is entirely listener-supported, so head on over to interestingtimespodcast.com to become one of those listeners who is, you know, supporting it. That'd be great. Thanks. Uh, Also go over to iTunes, give us a rating and a review, all that. Uh, Give us, like, stars and words and that sort of thing. Go over on Facebook and click the like button. Uh, Go on to Twitter, at Joe Streckert, click the follow button. Follow me on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com, and I am even on Spotify. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. The Lincoln Way, so selected, if done wisely, will become great. I offer a few suggestions and also a list of supplies to carry. Extra tire casings, four extra inner tubes, two sets tire chains, six extra cross chains, eight feet high tension cable, eight feet low tension cable, one set lamp bulbs, one Spartan horn, one five gallon milk can. For water west of Cheyenne One axe, one shovel Two 